Welcome to The Times. To find out more, head to thetimes.co.uk. Well, welcome to Bournemouth and a special Lib Dem-themed edition of the Opinion podcast. A little bit later, I will be talking to Julia Unwin of the Joseph Roundtree Foundation, who is in search of a cross-party consensus on poverty fighting. I'll also be talking to two of my Times colleagues, Patrick Kidd and Michael Savage, about uh, the Ashcroft book that is rocking politics, or is it rocking politics, and also whether the Liberal Democrats have recovered a spring in their step. But for First of all, I'm joined by Norman Lamb, the defeated candidate for the leadership of the Liberal Democrats. Well, I'm now joined by Norman Lamb in a very, very wet Bournemouth. Yeah, I just got Um, soaked. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Now, you were the unsuccessful candidate for the leadership of the Liberal Democrats. Um, Some people wonder now, given the election of Jeremy Corbyn, whether you might have actually been a better choice. I'm not going to get into that, Tim. You wouldn't (laughs) expect me to comment on that. But how big an opportunity do you think the election of someone who many see as an unelectable Labour leader, someone more on the far left of the political spectrum, how big an opportunity is that for your party? Well, you're right. I mean, there has been a sort of takeover of the Labour Party. It's quite extraordinary, and no-one ever would have predicted what's happened. And and it has left a gaping chasm uh, in British politics between... Uh, Cameron and, and, and Corbyn and we must seek to fill that uh, and I, I think we must be prepared to talk to other progressives uh, along that journey um, we don't have a monopoly of wisdom and I think that it's critically important in a democracy that we sort of build a progressive alternative to the Conservatives, one party government, uh, one, a one party state is never a good thing, it breeds complacency, arrogance uh, the Conservatives need to understand that there's a, an exciting alternative there that keeps them on their toes and potentially challenges and wins power uh, in 2020 or whenever and uh, we need to be the sort of fulcrum around which that progressive movement of change develops. You yourself have championed mental health consistently for a number of years now as a defining issue for liberal democracy. Tim Farron is championing housing. My worry from a, if I was a Liberal Democrat activist would be it doesn't have any of that kind of resonance of the 1P for education that characterised the Charles Kennedy and Paddy Ashdown period or, or the opposition to the Iraq war. Maybe you have to be patient to find that issue, but you need something a little bit more earthy, I think, don't you, to connect? Well, I think, well, I mean, I think housing is pretty earthy and I, indeed I think you know, proper provision for people with mental ill health is pretty earthy and real for very many families across the country and I think there is this sort of historic injustice against people and it is it, But they're it, themes at the moment, they're not sort of like retail policies No, and, I, I, and I accept doorstep. that and I, and I think that's why uh, I called in the leadership election for us to you know, get busy with ideas to and to reach beyond the party. Uh, you and I are both uh, visiting fellows of Nuffield College. Yeah. Uh, we ought to be engaging with uh, liberal thinkers beyond our party, just like Joe Grimman did back in the 60s. So you get an excitement of new ideas. And, you know, we've got to somehow come to the point where we excite a new generation of young people. They're, they're inherently liberal in their attitudes, their values, uh, their principles. And if we will, we will be nothing. We won't be a party of the future unless we inspire that new generation of young people. And how hard are you finding it in opposition to get attention 
for your views. You've been overshadowed a little bit by the Lord Ashcroft book um, this week in Bournemouth. You're not seeing a Liberal Democrat regularly on question time or any questions in the way that was true in in the past. Do you think there is a danger, there'll be a temptation to perhaps say more shocking things, more uh, things that you wouldn't necessarily risk saying in previous time in order to get attention? Well, there is a, or do you think that's necessary to do? Well, there is a danger that, uh, uh, that we do that. And I'm very clear that whatever we say has to be based on fact and based on evidence. Uh, but I think we have to be a bit more audacious uh, and, and we have to get noticed. And, you know, I think there's an enormous danger that we just get ignored. We get written out of the script completely. And, you know, the BBC, when they're reporting on Parliament, they, they get the Labour reaction and then they go to the SNP. Uh, we got a lot more votes than them across the United Kingdom, but they have more MPs and that's what counts in the way our system works. So we've got to come up with our own news stories and, and, and that in part requires us to be a bit more uh, ingenious. We, we've, got to, we've got to build the evidence, you know, I, I, in, in, in the health and care field. We've got to go out there and do our Freedom of Information Act uh, inquiries, build up cases to, to demonstrate the cause that we uh, are trying to articulate. And I think if we're smart, uh, if we build a case based on evidence, but if we say new and interesting things, then I think we can get noticed. Does that mean a lot of the time you've got eight MPs, quite a l- much larger representation in the House of Lords, of course, I think over 100 peers, if mm. I, I'm mm. correct. Mm. But does it mean that you, a lot of your work perhaps is now outside of Parliament? Oh, to absolutely come back? it is. Yeah, I mean, we are the way the parliamentary system works, the way we have rights in debates and so forth, we can be often seen by uh, the system as irrelevant in the uh, parliamentary debate. We've, of course, got to make our case in Parliament, but I think we've got to reach well beyond that. And I'll give you one example, perhaps of a retail policy, which, I don't know, you may vehemently disagree with, but the legalisation of cannabis. Most people under the age of 40 think that it's a completely daft policy. We put a dangerous product in the hand of criminals. If I'm buying something from a criminal, I don't think they have my welfare at heart. And we pump billions of pounds globally into the hands of criminal networks. It's a totally failed policy, prohibition. Does Tim Farron agree with you on that policy? Well, I think so. I mean, we, we, we you know, I, I, you'll, <laughs> have not to, quite a yes. <laughs> you'll have to ask, you'll have to ask him about this. But if, if you're going to connect with young people, you've got to come up with ideas like this. And, you know, you go to Colorado, a, a state that's voted Republican, for goodness mm. sake, they've voted for an evidence-based rational policy that regulates a product rather than criminalising it. So, you know, that's the sort of thing I think we need to stand Get for. high with the Liberal Democrats. Absolutely. <laughs> and join in, Tim. <laughs> Thank, <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much, Norman Lamb. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Well, I'm now joined by our uh, chief political correspondent, Michael Savage, and uh, parliamentary sketch writer and diarist, uh, Patrick Kidd, part of a diminished media representation at this Liberal Democrat conference. And Patrick Kidd, we haven't been discussing uh, liberal democracy very much here. It's been the Lord... Oink, oink. (laughs) It's been the naughty boy. It's been the Lord Ashcroft book that's been dominating discussion here as much as in the rest of the of the country how damaging do you think the revelations that we've seen so far in this call me dave unauthorized biography are to the prime minister i think they're very titillating we've been talking about uh, particularly what he got up to in his Swineshead Revisited days um, for, for the last... I know. Oh, dear, dear, dear. For the last 36 hours. And it will go on. And although there's not a Prime Minister's question time now until 
October the 14th or thereabouts. I'm sure that this will be brought up then. We have a letter in from Pepper in Oxford, Jeremy Corbyn will say. And, uh, but, you know, this isn't going to cause lasting damage to his premiership. I mean, in fact, it's only the pig story that's really got any traction. The fact that the Prime Minister likes to hang out with other posh people and that sometimes posh people take drugs, although they have not made any allegation about the Prime Minister or anyone in particular. Uh, it's all been very bland. I mean, perhaps the fact that David Richards, the uh, former chief of the defence staff, has attacked him over the way he's handled the Middle East is more damaging, but that's not new. This we had that said. in the Anthony Seldon biography yes. as well. So, uh. so, I mean, it's been a few titillating pork jokes, and they've been very, very funny pork jokes. But I don't think history will look back on this. And this was meant to be published as the obituary to the Prime Minister's time in Downing Street. Lord Ashcroft, like everyone else, didn't think he was going to win. Uh, and he has, and whatever David Cameron might feel, and I understand he's feeling a lot of anger, perhaps a bit of embarrassment, he can always just look back on the fact he won an election, Absolutely. and that's what matters. My, Michael Savage, are you as um, relaxed from a David Cameron point of view? It's, it's acutely embarrassing for him. Yeah, I mean, else. I certainly wouldn't say relaxed. I don't imagine when his aide sat down and said, Prime Minister, we've got a few things to tell you about today's paper on the day the revelations first emerged. Um, that can't have been a very comfortable day, but I, I must say I agree. Um, it's, I think we'll all get the puns out of our system uh, now. When I found myself making a joke about ham hock, I realised I was probably at the bottom of the barrel at that point. I think the serious point is, actually for the Conservatives at the next election, there's probably going to be a different leader anyway, so it can't really be an election point in 2020. There's also the flip side that this is a quite interesting mood by Lord Ashcroft. I mean, he says in terms he fell out with Cameron over not being given a senior job in government that's quite something for a donor to say mm. um, and Lord Ashcroft is someone who's done a lot and spent a lot of money and done a lot of good work on on polling and it would be a shame if all that was devalued as a result of this quite bitter book One cabinet minister said to me that Lord Ashcroft had acted like a suicide bomber with a, uh, enough explosives attached to him to destroy himself <laughs> but not enough to destroy the Prime Minister, slightly uh, lurid description but how much damage do you think he will have done to himself in the eyes of Tory activists who for years and years have regarded him, particularly his contribution for the Tories' lowest period after 97, as a, as a real asset and a saviour of the party? There's certainly a danger of that, and there's also the optics of David Cameron. Just touching again on what Patrick said before the election, we thought perhaps he wouldn't be Prime Minister, certainly didn't think he'd have a majority, but now he's a Prime Minister who, against the odds, has secured a majority for the Conservative Party. And actually, that's a real achievement. So his reputation among activists is actually sky high. And the, the fact of this timing of this book, it's, it's quite different to how it would have been had he lost the election. It's part of the problem, Patrick, the residual thing. It just reinforces the sense that whether the pig uh, anecdote is true or not, the Tory party are kind of run by a very rich elite. And do you think that might influence the succession plan to David Cameron? Well, given that the options are the St Paul's and Oxford-educated George Osborne or the Eton and Oxford-educated Boris Johnson... Might not be the only option. Uh, no, no, Sajid. Exeter Sajid. University's second finest alumnus um, <laughs> has a good chance. I don't think it's going to damage anything. I mean, what it has reminded us, though, is that when it comes to unusual sex, it's not just the Lib Dems who have a <laughs> monopoly on it. Uh, ever since Gladstone and his picking up fallen women on the streets, it's always been the Lib Dems we've had a chuckle at, right <laughs> through to Limbit and the Cheeky Girls. Look, this is a laugh. Um, Cameron, it, I'm told, was very angry, but he was cracking jokes about it last night, um, as I'll be 
after our interview, going back to write in the Times Diary, he was at an event at the Carlton Club and he made a joke about this, saying that he'd been to see his osteopath earlier that day who had told him that I'm going to need to give you two injections. One is a small prick and then a big stab in the back. And Cameron (laughs) said, that's the story of my life. (laughs) So I think he's moved on. He realises that in the grand scheme of history... Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. He will be remembered more than Lord Ashcroft. Okay. Grand scheme of history, Michael Savage. Are we seeing the end of the Liberal Democrats? Let's talk about... We're here in Bournemouth looking yeah. over the, the sea. Um, do the Liberal Democrats have an exciting vision of future ahead of them? Straight after the election, I would have said, well, it's clearly a terrible result. What they have to do now is what they did last time round, which is, is go away, work locally, do well in local elections year after year, build up a base, work extremely hard, win the UNP in the area, and that's how they rebuild. And, and that's how they will try and do it. So next May, local elections will be very important. But actually what's interesting is what's happened in the meantime is Labour have elected Jeremy Corbyn as leader, obviously. And so a lot of those sort of protest votes that maybe the Lib Dems under Tim Farron, a a big campaigner, would have got, might actually not necessarily go to the Lib Dems now. And perhaps maybe they should have gone for the sort of more centrist alternative in government, Norman Lamb. Do you think if they had the leadership election now, they might have chosen somebody different? Well, the landscape is very different, and there's a danger for the Lib Dems. They've got caught out by the crosswinds of politics here, because suddenly you've got a Labour party moving in a very different direction. It's all made it very unpredictable, so it's not clear to me that there is an easy way back for them. Mm. Now, some people will have been listening to this um, speech um, after... Uh, we haven't heard Tim Farron's speech yet, but we expect him to emphasise housing as his big theme. He says that he became a sort of political activist, really, after watching When Cathy Come Home, I think that's the right title, yeah. um, a, a book about homelessness from uh, his youth. Is this the issue to connect the Liberal Democrats with the electorate? Um, well... Tim Farron won the election basically because he was a good campaigner. He was a comfort blanket. He was someone who could rally the party together. So it's right for him to take a sort of campaigning stance as a way of rebuilding the party. Whether housing is the right issue or not, it's very unclear because actually all the parties agree that you need to build more housing. The problem is it's an extremely knotty and difficult problem, not one that's easy to fix. Mm. And again, you're going to have a Labour Party who under Ed Miliband promised a lot of house building. And you can be sure that a lot of Uh, Corbyn supporters and indeed his team will want to do the same thing Mm. and he already has an army of people who have flocked to his banner so it's certainly not going to be straightforward that's not to say housing isn't a big issue because clearly it is. Patrick just wrapping up one thing that I've been impressed at we know that the Liberal Democrats are reduced to just eight seats but Paddy Ashdown, Nick Clegg, Vince Cable the heavyweights of the Liberal Democrat past they're all here they're on the fringe they're talking to activists, they're in the coffee rooms. That is quite a boost for Tim Farron, isn't it? He's not being left on his own to pick this party up. 
No, and when we're hearing about some of the big names that have said they're going to stay away from the Labour conference, um, heard that Stella Creasy, who had a very good second place in the deputy leadership contest, has said she's not going to go to Brighton. That is true, is it? That's Well, this is the rumour I've heard. I, mm. I think she tweeted it. Um, but we shall see about that. But yes, you're right. Um, so that's Shirley Williams, Ming Campbell. They're very visible, wandering around, meeting people, shaking hands, glad handing. And there's a good turnout here. Mm. We're being led to believe it's a record turnout. I never know how you would justify that. But they're saying it's about 3,000 delegates. The halls are full. I tried to go along to a fringe event this lunchtime with uh, Joe Swinson uh, on on why we lost the election, and I couldn't get in. The room was packed. Should have come to mine. Well, I should have come to yours instead. Well, it was raining, (laughs) and you were in a different building. But and and you know, uh, she's not the biggest draw. You'd have thought, okay, she's been relatively profile, but it was packed. and that's heartening, and they are winning local election results. And I got chatting um, yesterday to a couple of new members who had signed up on May the 8th and were so galvanised by this that, uh, that, that they wanted to be part of, of the revival. We shall see, really. Um, there's a long time to go until the next general election, but at the moment the polls haven't shifted. They're on about 7%. Mm. Uh, and, and as Michael said, um, Tim Farron is a very good grassroots man. But I think Norman Lamb has the brains um, and has got the ministerial experience and he's going to be needed a lot to give them the integrity as well as the heart. So before I let you both uh, go, on a scale of 0 to 10, how excited are you about the Labour Party conference that we will all be at next week? How how many fireworks are we going to to see? 11. Um, (laughs) uh, I I really don't have any idea what to expect. And actually I was talking to a Labour MP this week who said much the same thing you know there's a lot of Labour MPs who have just become commentators and observers like the rest of it they're fascinated to see how on earth this Corbyn experiment which it is whether you're pro or uh, against it it is an experiment and everyone's just waiting to see what anti-austerity means in practice Mm -hmm. and uh, will he succeed it's fascinating I give it six because I worry that they could become too earnest start getting down the the route of too much detail. I saw um, the speech that Jeremy Corbyn gave to the TUC Congress last week, and it was dreadful. He really isn't a public speaker, not in big halls. He's used to speaking to 17 people on very technical issues. And so I wonder whether we're going to see a lot of quite tedious, quite earnest grandstanding. There'll be some backstabbing, but I reckon the backstabbers uh, won't be there. (laughs) They'll they'll be backstabbing on Twitter instead of on Newsnight or coming on to speak to the Times instead. Uh, Michael Savage, Patrick Kidd, thank you very much. Well, I'm now joined by Julia Unwin, Chief Executive of the Joseph Rowntree Foundation. And Julia, you are like one of the media people who go to all of these party conferences. Is this your first of this year? It certainly is. (laughs) And I've got four to go and a housing association, one in the middle. (laughs) (laughs) And as you begin your tour of the conferences, I assume meeting politicians, attending fringe meetings and, and speaking at them. One of them that we've just spoken at together here at the Liberal Democrats was on the possibility of a cross-party consensus on poverty. What encourages you in that mission and perhaps what discourages you in seeing parties come together on the kind of agenda that the Joseph Rowntree Foundation would like to see? I think what encourages me is the recognition that we do need a long-term response that stops start on the issues of housing and pay 
tax benefits is not serving anybody and actually we never in this country do anything for long enough to see if it's going to work. I think that's a shared view across the parties and I think there are some really critical issues, all of which to my mind speak to poverty, where unless we get that long-term response and a shared sense, not of the detail, parties have to differentiate themselves, but of the direction and the challenge, we're doomed to failure. I think poverty and housing, which is its concomitant twin, are those issues. Unless we think for the long term, we will end up letting down the next generation. All the politicians I talk to, individually at least, get it. And housing, you, you, you focus on housing. It's something you are involved in outside of the mm. foundation as well. Lots of controversy about the government's right to buy policy. But we're hearing from the housing minister, Brandon Lewis, making this quite audacious promise that there will be a million more homes in the country by the end of 2020, the end of this parliament. Do you know where they're coming from? (laughs) I really hope he's right, (laughs) because we certainly need them. We need them in all tenures. We need housing for rent and housing for sale. We probably need the intermediates, which my organisation also provides, of shared ownership. People building up an asset in a home they own is incredibly important. But so too is the security and certainty of living in a home where you can stay for some time. Mm. Housing must never become an emergency response in a crisis. Mm. It's the baseline on which people bring up their families, go to work, build good lives and contribute to the community. And I'm worried about an aspiration that talks about home ownership to the exclusion of all else, because actually, I think it's a false prospectus. There are people whose wages are such that they will never own. And indeed, there's a generation coming up now who, unless their parents are homeowners, have vanishingly little chance of ever becoming homeowners. Mm. We need a response to them, as well as to the very many people who do want to buy their own home and must be helped to do so. You mentioned low wages in that answer. And in George Osborne's budget, we saw good and ill, perhaps. We saw the promise of a national living wage um, by the end of the parliament but we also saw quite large cuts in tax credits how worried are you at the the foundation at the balance of those two measures or are you relaxed we did publish some work quite recently which um, indicates that the people who will do okay out of that are two a couple where they're both working and they have no children the people who will do very much worse are couples with small children and particularly single people with children what's the sort of scale of loss that we're talking about 30 to 40 percent for some of the poorest 30 to 40 percent straight away or over time over time so by the end of the parliament so 10 percent perhaps in the first year and i think those were the figures um what troubles me most is that this big experiment of putting up wages, which I applaud was the right thing to be done, is being done at such a pace that you're reducing tax credits simultaneously. Tax credits are a smoothing mechanism for a volatile labour market. They're incredibly important to enable people to take the big risk of going into work, taking on more hours, going for that promotion. I think they have ended up being used to subsidise poor wages, but actually we need them as part of the mix. You're an organisation that defends... Uh, people in uh, poverty across the age spectrum. One of the successes, you could say, of public policy in many advanced Western nations is huge progress on pensioner poverty. I think there are 1.7 million pensioners in the UK who still are very poor, but most pensioners now are doing quite well with the top 20% earning an average of £42,000 a year. And yet all of those pensioners benefit from the government's triple lock, quite a generous increase in the the annual 
pension that if we were a rich society without a deficit, we would perhaps love to afford. Is it something that you would recommend to government that if hard choices have to be made, actually you could cut some of that pension entitlement to relieve perhaps the burden on the working poor, the cuts that you've just been talking about in tax credits, freeing up more money back to where we started to invest in housing? I think it goes back to my earlier point, is that you can't do these things short term and you can't carve up the poor population. You're absolutely right. One of the successes of public policy has been the way in which we've broken the automatic link between poverty and old age. When I was growing up, the image of old age was a lady huddled in a blanket by a fire. Mm. We have broken that image and that's a huge success for public policy. But we now have people in their 40s and 50s living on the minimum wage, putting nothing behind them, putting nothing away, getting deeper into debt, their long-term future does not look nearly so secure. So we need an approach to poverty for all ages because we can't separate out one age group from another. Well, that's all for today. Dave McGuire, my producer, and I will be travelling along the south coast to Brighton for next week's edition. We'll be at the Labour Party conference for all the fun and games that, like Michael Savage, I'm anticipating. Thank you very much for joining us, and I look forward to being in touch again next week. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. 